Meanwhile, an interview with Jerry Conway, writer of Justice League of America and co-creator of the Justice League Detroit era. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of the Justice League International Wahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host. And if you've been a devoted listener to this podcast, welcome back. And if you're new around here, welcome to the Embassy. For you new folks, each month on this podcast, we recap and discuss the Justice League comics released from roughly 1987 to 1992, where the main writers were Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. Now, we're going issue by issue, month by month, in release order, and we're covering the Justice League of America title, Justice League Europe, Justice League Quarterly, all the various spinoffs, the one-shots, annuals, all that stuff. Each episode, I bring along some guest hosts to help me cover the comics. And this ever-changing roster of guest hosts includes different voices from either the podcasting community, fellow JLI fans, and even some comics professionals. We've been doing this for about five years now, and so far we've covered through Justice League America issue number 37 and Justice League Europe issue number 13, plus the annuals from 1990. Now, in our coverage, we're soon going to be discussing the Justice League quarterly series, which features the introduction of the superhero team called The Conglomerate. Now, that team's composed of a whole bunch of characters, such as our beloved Booster Gold, but relevant to our our discussion today, the team also features former JLA member Gypsy and the brother of former JLA member Vibe. Both Gypsy and Vibe were members of the Justice League of America team from 1984 through 1987, during an era affectionately known as Justice League Detroit. Now, this was the team just prior to the formation of our beloved Justice League International era. With the conglomerate stories on the horizon, now seem like a pretty good time to look back at Gypsy and Vibe's origins with the Justice League. Now, here's the best part, all right? Today, our guest to help us discuss Justice League Detroit is none other than the comic book writer and co-creator of that entire era, Mr. Jerry Conway. Now, for me... Before working on this Justice League International podcast, uh, some of you might know that I spent most of my time online promoting the character of Firestorm the Nuclear Man. Now, Jerry Conway is the co-creator of Firestorm, so through my Firestorm activities there, I was fortunate enough to interview Jerry like, I don't know, five or six times over the past decade or so. Jerry's always been wonderful to chat with and an incredible guest. Now, this Justice League Detroit discussion we had was an absolute blast, and I I think you're really going to enjoy it. Now, before we get to the interview, we do need to thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode will select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library, usually to be tied into that month's issue of JLI in some way, shape, or form. This time out, I wanted to pick something that has some Jerry Conway written Justice League issues in it, so I picked Justice League of America, A Celebration of 60 Years. Now, this is a 448-page hardcover and it collects a whole bunch of issues from the Justice League history, including the amazing Justice League of America issue number 200, which is written by Jerry, which is phenomenal, and Justice League of America annual number two, which is the very first issue in the Justice League Detroit era. Uh, Also, by the way, if you're a JLI fan, it also includes the first issue of Justice League by Giffen and DiMatteis from 87, so that's a win right there. So altogether, this book is, uh, as I said, 448 pages. It normally retails for $29.99, but you can get it for 42% off, so only $17.39. 
$0.39. That's a heck of a deal, folks. So for this and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. We also need to take a second to thank you folks at home who support our Patreon. Because running the Firewater Podcast Network is challenging with so many shows and all the online hosting and fees and all the various services that it requires. So when we started the Patreon a while back, you guys really stepped up and we sincerely appreciate it. And without you, we wouldn't still be on the air. So our thanks to all of you who support the Patreon. If you're enjoying shows like the JLI Podcast, please consider supporting us by visiting our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and consider supporting the Firewater Podcast Network. And at certain tiers, you get thanked on your show of choice, just like these folks who requested to be thanked on the JLI Podcast. So our thanks to Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, Danny Dowell, David Ace Gutierrez, Devin Clancy, George William, Gord Tolton, John Ross Haynes, Mark Baker-Wright, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Mike Zemkowski, Roger Preeb, Rudy Castillo, Sean Ross, and Tim Price. Again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Now, if you want to join the conversation, get out on the social medias and share your thoughts. You can find us on Twitter at JLI Podcast, on Facebook as Just League International Bahaha Podcast, and feel free to use our hashtag FW Podcast. Also, go out to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI Podcast. Leave your comments there in the show post. We'd love to hear your thoughts on either the Justice League Detroit era or on this interview with Jerry. Now, just two more things before we get to the interview. First, the news just broke this week, folks. There is a new series being published by DC Comics coming in July called Blue and Gold. Yes, Beetle and Booster are finally getting their own series. Now, it's an eight-issue limited series, but hey, uh, they are going to be featured, and it's called Blue and Gold, folks. Written by Dan Jurgens with art by Ryan Sook. The, uh, we don't know a lot. There, there's a description. You can go online and find that, but the general premise is Booster and Beetle decide they want to become famous through social media, becoming internet influencers. Oh my gosh. So, it sounds hilarious. Uh, I'm looking forward to checking it out. Again, Blue and Gold, number one on sale July 20th by Dan Jurgens and Ryan Sook. Now, the second thing before we get going here, just letting you know that the next episode of the JLI podcast will return to our regular monthly coverage with Justice League of America number 38 and Justice League Europe number 14. Okay, with those items out of the way, let's get down to Justice League Detroit and our discussion with Jerry Conway. If you're unfamiliar with Jerry Conway, he was one of the most prolific comic writers of the 1970s and 80s. He's written a large number of big-name characters for both Marvel and DC, with significant runs on Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Daredevil, Thor... Superman, Detective Comics, Justice League of America, and just pretty much everybody. He's probably best known for co-creating Marvel's Vigilante, The Punisher, and scripting the death of Gwen Stacy during his long run on The Amazing Spider-Man. He's also scripted the first major modern-day intercompany crossover, Superman vs. The Amazing Spider-Man, which, of course, was in the beloved Treasury format. In 1978, Jerry became the regular writer on Justice League of America. He wrote the series for about eight years across a hundred issues or so. Many of the famous Bronze Age JLA stories that you remember were written by Jerry. For his last two years on the book, he changed the status quo of the team, and along with artist Chuck Patton, they created the version of the team known as Justice League Detroit. Jerry left the Justice League of America series with issue 255. When he left, they brought in another writer, some guy named J.M.D. Mateus. I don't know. I've never heard of him. Anyway, uh, this guy, J.M.D. Mateus, finished up the last six issues of JLA. And immediately after that, the Justice League International era was born. Now, after leaving comics, Jerry went on to Hollywood with a very successful career writing and producing TV series such as Law and Order, Diagnosis Murder, Father Dowling Mysteries, and many more. So there's a lot more to know about Jerry Conway, obviously, folks, but I think I'm just going to let him speak for himself. Well, Jerry, thanks so much for being here on the Just League International Podcast. This is really exciting to have you here. Well, thank you. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk. 
your connection here for us as JLI readers is through your era of writing Justice League, specifically the era we're going to talk about that's affectionately known as Justice League Detroit. Right. It's not meant as a slander, but it's uh, that's that's no, kind of no. what it's become known as. See, I think it's even the title of the omnibus collected. Uh, oh, is it really? <laughs> yeah, Justice League Detroit. <laughs> it's got it's got a gorgeous cover by Jose oh, Luis yeah. Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Now, so Justice League Detroit. While you were writing this, there was the team was transitioning to a much more grounded and younger team of you know pretty much mostly unknowns. So, what prompted that change, and who was the driving force behind that change? Well, we had been seeing a decline in readership on the Justice League book for for a few years, and not not like a serious decline, but just you know in line with the rest of the DC line in general. And a few books at DC were doing really well, and one of those, of course, was Teen Titans. Mm -hmm. So the notion came about that uh, you know we were either going to change the creative team on uh, Justice League, which would mean I would leave it, which obviously I didn't want to do, <laughs> <laughs> or or we would uh, you know try to refashion the team in some way. And I had been feeling for some time that there was a constraint, a, a creative constraint, to writing a book with so many characters who had their own ongoing series. Mm. I tried to focus in my stories on characters, at least from a, from a continuity point of view, who were not featured in, in other series. You know, like I did a Red Tornado uh, run of mm -hmm. stories, Zavanna uh, run of stories. But as an ongoing matter, you couldn't really have a cohesive team, I felt, although other people have managed to do so successfully. I didn't feel that I could do a, a cohesive team book that reflected, you know, character arcs and character growth with characters who were not solely in that book. So there was a confluence between DC's desire to somehow up sales on that book to levels, you know, similar to Teen Titans and my own desire to come up with a, a new creative approach that would allow me to focus on characters uh, and character stories rather than just, you know, big adventures, which I was perfectly happy doing, but, you know, it was not getting the, uh, the kind of response that the management wanted from the readership. So that was really the motivation. Well, I find it kind of interesting. To me, it's it's a little bit like a snake eating its own tail because, you know, because <laughs> here you are, you know, you created Firestorm, which was, sorry, folks, I'm a Firestorm guy. I'm going to have to mention it. Anyway, you create Firestorm, this Marvel character basically at DC who brings this younger dynamic to the Justice League. Uh, and then, you know, you're doing this with George Perez and George Perez is yeah. doing the Firestorm backups as well in The Flash and these become very popular. Then George Perez moves over to Teen Titans with Marv Wolfman, new Teen Titans, very modeled in a lot of ways on a Marvel superhero team. Mm -hmm. Then the JLA starts chasing the Teen Titans. Who I, I feel like it kind of went secular with you introducing Firestorm to the team with George Perez, and that kind of ends up you guys are all chasing it yourselves, it feels like. Well, yeah, I mean, and one of the problems at DC was that they really didn't know what they were doing editorially mm. um, and, and have never, actually. <laughs> no, and, and that's not not necessarily because they're, they're not smart people. It's just that because of the way that, that their company is set up with a variety, even now with a variety of fiefdoms, they don't have a cohesive vision of what a good comic book should be. Hmm. You know, and Marvel has always had, uh, since the days of Stan and Jack, a template, you know, and, and a template is really important. It's something that you can use as a guide for the direction you want to move. Mm -hmm. And you can move away from that, you know, as a, as a conscious decision because you have the template to fall back on, or you can 
move towards it. But with DC, there were so many different theories. Every editor had a theory of what sold. And as a result, you know, you had all these different uh, directions and no template. In recent years, when Jeff Johns was the top writer at, at DC, I felt that they were moving towards a point where they had a template. Mm-hmm. Because what Jeff was doing was something that was repeatable and was simple enough that you could point to it and say, okay, let's do stories that fit into this kind of template. And as a result, you could have a fairly consistent, if if the editorial staff was willing to actually follow it, you could have a consistent type of DC story and it would have been effective. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have that. So when I was doing my book, I was trying to do my take on a, on a Marvel template. Uh, when Marv Wolfman was doing his book, he was doing his take on a Marvel template. And because Marv ended up working on a book with George Perez that that hit the zeitgeist, you know, and, and, right. and it was kind of an easy zeitgeist to aim for, which is teen superheroes, because what was the most popular book in comics at that time? X-Men, you know, which exactly. was teen superheroes. But then you have the, the editorial staff going, well, wait a minute, we have other teen books and they're not doing as well as this Teen Titans book. So clearly something must be wrong. But that's not the case. <laughs> <laughs> what the case is, is that you've got a perfect match between subject matter and audience interest, which is Teen Titans. And that's a unique book that you can't really replicate. It's not a template that you can then take and, and do all your other books in the same format. So I was faced with this, you know, kind of round robin, as you say, this eating its own tail situation. And rather than leave the book, which I really didn't want to do, I said, hey, why don't we try to replicate that to some extent? And it'll give me the opportunity, you know, to develop these characters that, that fell by the wayside, you know, like Vixen and Steel uh, during the DC implosion and, uh, you know, create some new characters who might have their own future. Well, I've read some interviews with Chuck Patton about how you guys came up with Just League Detroit. It sounds like it was pretty collaborative uh, yes, in the yeah. development. Can you describe what it was like working with Chuck? Well, working with Chuck was a lot like working with a Marvel artist in that at this late date, I'm not sure whether I wrote full script, but Chuck and I talked over what the group would be, what, what the idea was for each of these characters. And specifically, he and I developed Gypsy and vibe Mm -hmm. to sort of fill out the dynamic of the rest of the book. Vibe was an attempt, uh, poorly executed on my behalf, to, you know, create another diversified hero featuring something that at the time was current, you know, which was breakdancing and uh, urban culture Mm -hmm. and Hispanic culture, urban Hispanic uh, culture, uh, from my my memory of it, from New York. And Gypsy was uh, an attempt to create a mystery character, someone whose backstory would be slowly unveiled and provide us with clues and and something to question and something to to, to look forward to getting the, the secret out uh, right. as, as a series progressed. So working with Chuck, you know, that's what we developed and what we came up with, you know, those two characters in, in specifically, and then the redesigns for Vixen and Steel that uh, since Steel was actually, you know, a, a character that was based on an earlier character, you know, and had a, his own story. Mm-hmm. And then Dale Gunn, who was a, a supporting character introduced in the book, 
again for balance, you know, and to, and to provide like a, a non-superhero authority figure that balance off the superhero characters. It's interesting. Dale was the first like support staff the Justice League ever had, and now that's yeah. kind of that's kind of a regular thing. They they consistently have re- support staff characters. So well. In a way, Snap a Car was the first support. Oh staff. my gosh! <laughs> uh, he was in, the in one this... who collected. The, yeah, he collected the mail. He would go through <laughs> it, you know, and, and pick out. Remember, in the early issues, he would pick out things for them to go answer uh, letters to answer. <laughs> okay, I, I, I guess yeah. that's fair, but uh, he's he's not high on the list of favorites, though. I think. <laughs> no, no, he really is. It was just a shame. I mean, he was again. He was a kind of a point of view character for the sure. audience, supposedly. Right. Uh, Although no audience that I would recognize, you know, recognize <laughs> Snapper Car. So uh, eventually Chuck leaves the book, and then Luke McDonald comes on as the, as the regular penciler. So how was it uh, like working with Luke? Well, I, by that point, I was doing full scripts, and I don't think I really had much to do with Luke. I, I, I'm really not certain anymore why Chuck left, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I know that we had problems with our editor. Uh, who was a complete newbie, had no real experience editing comics. Dick Giordano, for some reason, had this theory, which worked out well with Karen Berger, but not so well with other other people, that bringing people in who had no experience in the comics field would somehow give a refreshing viewpoint. Oh, I see. Um, okay. Now, now, this particular editor was a comic book fan, but his primary experience had been doing textbooks. So I really... Mm. And, and he came and after Len Wein and I and Chuck had more or less started the the development of the of the storyline. So we got this new editor who really did not understand how to promote the book, didn't know how to design covers for the book, didn't really know how to defend us in, in the editorial debates. And I think it was I mean, I honestly don't remember, but I think it was Chuck left in part because there was a feeling that a different artist could somehow reach that magical Teen Titans audience. Mm. Uh, and again, you know, our editor either didn't have a strong enough opinion or agreed with that position or just didn't know how to fight it. And uh, Luke came on and I, I don't really think I had much uh, input there because I really didn't have much influence with this editor. <laughs> gotcha. Understood. And, th- and that's a shame because Chuck's a phenomenal artist. I like, uh, yeah. I-, I think... You know, this is going to come off a little bit negative, but I don't, I'm not sure he had the greatest inker on those early Justice League Detroit no, issues. No, he, um, he didn't. When, when Dick Giordano was inking those covers, I mean, it was some of the slickest looking stuff that DC had on the shelves. Uh, but the yeah. inside, you got different people helping him out. Yeah, and and that, again, is an editorial issue. Yeah. Uh, but Chuck has gone on. I think in certain ways it was good for him because it kind of impelled him to leave the business and go into animation where he's been very successful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, better for him. <laughs> <laughs> everything uh, happens for a reason. I, I seem yeah. to recall speaking to a guy who used to write Firestorm told me that everything happened for a reason and he landed in television, <laughs> maybe? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you have to look at these things in the, the course of a career rather than... The, the crisis of the moment, you know. Sure. And while I was very unhappy with how things went with that series, you know, and the lack of protection, you know, that we received, it, it was what it was. And it, ultimately, it brought Jam to Madison to the book, you know, and 
went mm-hmm. to this, into working more regularly at DC, and that was a good thing. Uh, you mentioned JMD Matei, so there's no way Justice League International would have happened if it hadn't been for Justice League Detroit. You showed no, yeah. that you could do a book that didn't feature Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, all them, and, and coming right out of crisis, they couldn't have done a book with those heroes anyway. So, I mean, Justice League Detroit was, in, in its own way, a template for how to do that book, and yeah, a lot of credit to yeah. it. So I, I do have an art question, and maybe this is maybe this is the wrong place for it. I don't know, but since we mentioned some of the characters, we mentioned some of the the, the artists here. Both Steel and Vibe went through costume changes during the run, and I wasn't yeah. sure the the Steel costume change happened during Luke McDonald's era. Vibe's costume change happened during a George Tuska issue, and I just didn't know if, if you happen to know like who did those designs because I know like a Longate Man went through a costume change as well, but that was done by Stephen Destafano. So I don't know if you knew who was responsible yeah. for those changes. I honestly don't, but I. I, I I think Luke suggested the changes for Steel, mm-hmm. and I think I was on board with that because the the look that Steel had was a little bit constrained, you know, and yeah. the, the the look the look that Luke brought to it was I think more more effective than the original design. As far as Vibe goes, by that point we were getting a lot of heat from different people about you know what was perceived to be this this ghettoization of the character and and the way he seemed to reflect stereotypes, and you know that. Was justified, and and it was also true that by that point the whole breakdance thing and the the whole MC Hammer look was you know, just <laughs> not not effective anymore, and it was it was too too tied to a particular moment in, in time. So I don't know that w- whether it was uh, the editor's uh, choice, whether something that Dick Giordano uh, or Joe Orlando, whoever was the editorial director at that point, decided. Uh, but I don't think I had much input on it. Got Gotcha. Well, let's talk a little bit about Vibe. First off, first you know Latino member of the Justice League, which is fantastic. And he, he was designed as an inner city gang member from Detroit with Puerto Rican parents. And again, it's a huge step forward for the Latino community who were underrepresented in comics at the time. But as you said, a lot of backlash on the negative stereotypes and stuff. So can you tell us what you were trying to develop, what you saw in your mind that you were trying to do? Well, what I was trying actually, and, I, and again, this is a failure on my part creatively to make it clear, was that he was playing to the stereotypes that at home, you know, w- with his family, all the ghetto language disappeared, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the cliches were gone because that was his secret identity. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That the vibe persona was supposed to be the cliche because he wanted to be not recognized. And in my own way, what I was trying to do is comment on perception versus the reality. And <laughs> I just didn't make it clear enough. And as a result, people assumed that I was saying that this was the reality, that vibe as the stereotyped Latino ghetto kid was who he actually was, when in fact, it was the exact opposite, you know, that, that who he actually was, was this well-spoken, thoughtful young man with a healthy family structure, and he just didn't want to be known, you know, at that right. time. Yeah, he, was, so, he, had a, he had a definitely had a persona for his friends. And, and, and now as a reader, it was clear to me, I mean, you had scenes where he goes home and even uh, Steele would be like, hey, you completely changed the way you're talking. You know, he, he actually calls it out, yes. but I guess the readers weren't picking up on it. I don't know. I mean, it was, it was hard. 
hard. And uh, it, it was particularly hard because I, I later found out that George Perez was really offended by it. Aww. And, you know, I, I certainly, you know, if I had had that feedback at the time, you know, would have would have addressed it. But this is the problem that you end up having. We, we had a lot in, in comics prior to the last half decade, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> which is that the people who were creating the comics, even with the best of intentions, were people who were outside the uh, communities that they were trying to represent. And you know, there's just no way that a straight white guy from Queens could authentically write characters like that. You know, I mean, I could do the best that I could, but, you know, I, I don't have a lived experience and right. I don't I don't know what is an appropriate approach, you know, that even even to express the point of view that I was trying to express by not having the lived experience of, of that group i don't i don't know how to do it <laughs> you know? and that's that's just true it's a truth that all of us who are white male creators resist accepting because you know we 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 want to believe that as creative individuals we can speak in any voice you know but it isn't true right <laughs> it, just, it just isn't and you know there, there, there's an old saying uh it's a cliche but you know it it is absolutely true write what you know too many of us think that that means because we are we're all human beings with shared sets of emotions and shared sets of uh, reactions to things that can translate over to shared cultural points of view. And that is just not the case. You know, I know that when uh, one of the things that offended me the most in my life creatively was when I saw a film by by David Lean, and it's slipping my mind what, what film it was, but it was basically about the Irish Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And David Lean made this film and had as the main characters were all played by British actors. Mm. And I just was infuriated because while he was trying to be sympathetic, the truth is the British were the ones that the Irish were rebelling against. Right. And you don't get to tell our story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, I don't care how sympathetic you are, you know, or how much you think you understand it. You do not get to tell our story. And that is honestly where I, I can understand the dismay of people from the Latino community, people from the black community people from the gay community, women being frustrated by these people like myself, who with the best of intentions, think we are, we are capable of telling their story. We are not. <laughs> We're just not. So like, we should just shut up, get out of the way and let them do it. <laughs> that would be my point, my approach. Well, you're absolutely right about where we are nowadays in the comic book world. Yes. And, and hopefully enough publishers are seeing that. Now, looking back where we were here, though, back in 84. I mean, you, as you said, the best of intentions. I mean, you, you gave us our first, sure. first full-time black member of the team, our first full-time Latino member of the team. And there were more women on the team than ever before. Yes. Let's just call it the heart was in the right place. So as far as that goes, how did that decision process come about to try and make the team more progressive and more ethnically diverse? Who was pushing that train and, and what was well, the thought? Well, I think, I, I think I was mostly pushing the train, but I have to give credit to, to Len Wein, who had been my editor when we were first discussing this, you know, when we were talking about what would be an idealized team. Mm. And and I don't think we were talking in terms of a, a diversity per se. 
say. It's just that it did, it just felt better. You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we didn't have the concept of diversity as we have today. It was more like, you know, there should be more women on this team. We should have a couple of guys who are not white guys. It just came naturally because we were trying to tell stories that seemed more authentic. And all you had to do was look around at the world that we were living in to realize this just made more sense. Mm-hmm. And even as a Justice League fan from like the Brave and the Bold days, I was aware that it was was really weird that there was only one woman <laughs> right. in the group and that mostly she was the secretary. I, I mean, uh. she was the second most powerful person on the team <laughs> after, <laughs> after Superman. And she was treated as like an afterthought in many of the stories. And as time went by and, and DC slowly introduced female characters, I remember when Zatanna came along and Hawkgirl, mm-hmm. you know, I was excited by that as a reader. I just thought that was cool. You know, I just liked the idea of another character that had superpowers or, you know, was was a powerful character. Black Canary, when she came in, that seemed cool to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't about, you know, diversity. It just felt right. You know, that that's how it, how it felt. So, when we were talking about it, it wasn't like a conscious thing of we're going to expand this group and make it more ethnically balanced. It was more like, what's the thing that we can do that will make this more interesting? And a Hispanic character, yeah. To me, it was like, well, obviously. Right, right. (laughs) It's like Vixen. When I created Vixen, it was like, well, yeah, you know, DC needs a black superheroine. Why is this even like a question? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, let's talk a little bit about that with Vixen. Because you mentioned already, both Vixen and Steel, they came from the DC implosion and uh, they were probably the two characters that got fleshed out the most, at least in my perception as a reader, during your Justice League Detroit run. In fact, we ran a poll recently on our our Patreon asking whose people's favorite Justice League Detroit newbie was and Vixen had the clear majority of votes. Uh, Steel was second which uh, I was pleased to see. Now, as I said, both the characters were created in the 70s. Would you mind talking about their original creation and what led them to Justice League Detroit? Well, uh, their original creation was uh, obviously intended to be, uh, in Steel's case, he, he was intended to be a World War II superhero, kind of in the mold of Captain America, which is like, duh. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but at the same time, when I when I brought him in to Justice League as his grandson, the thought was, okay, what would have happened to a character who was a gung-ho pro-America superhero from the 40s, you know, a greatest generation hero, as he matured into the world that the 70s and 80s presented us with. And a lot of the greatest generation people had become very conservative, very right wing. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting, you know, if you had this guy who had been a hero in the in the 40s, who's kind of become a bit of a bad guy, mm-hmm. you know, not not like a full full on bad guy, but just somebody who, who, who whose motives you could question. And then drawing on my own experience with my dad, who had the best of intentions, but was clueless. <laughs> <laughs> about Vietnam. Oh. I mean, he, he was saying to me, like, well, you know, you should be... I was terrified of being drafted. Mm-hmm. Uh, just terrified, you know, because I knew it was a, a hellhole and a, and a death trap. But my dad was, well, you know, the Army is a great place for camaraderie, you know, and you, you'll really... Get, it'll help you mature. And you shouldn't be worried about it because uh, the people there, you know, they'll, they'll take good care of you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> You just don't know what what the world is like now. And I thought, well, a guy with that attitude 
and with with his perception of what's necessary could do some really horrific things mm. to his kids you know and and since i wanted it to be a teenager i figured we'll make it the grandson because i just did the math and that's what it would have ended up being sure and that that sort of motivated how i was going to approach steel and with that kind of storyline that's a really deep and potentially rich character structure to 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 draw with vixen vixen had originally just been intended to be a a standalone superheroine and as i said her series was canceled during the dc implosion and i so wanted to do this character that i find i talked julie schwartz into letting me introduce her in a superman story mm-hmm. in action comics and i like with firestorm it was all about trying to find ways to to get that character back into the public eye or into the public eye in her case so I had all that that emotional weight built up for for her when I got her into Justice League to drive that story and to and to put a lot of input into that character that I didn't have uh, unfortunately for Vibe and Gypsy. Sure. While I was interested in their stories, I didn't have the same commitment to them that I'd had for Vixen. Right. Because it was really important to me to to rescue her. In effect, uh, <laughs> so she got a lot of attention, and and again, she had a kind of a backstory because of the mythology that that I'd created for her, you know, of the Tantu totem and her parents, uh, the war in Africa, you know, and the tribal history, uh, which to an extent was probably drawn a little bit or influenced a little bit by, you know, Black Panther and, and Wakanda. There was a rich vein to tap on that. But I did have intentions for Gypsy to be the breakout character in that group. Really? Was, yeah, I really wanted to make the mystery of her be kind of the center of things. But as I said, you know, there was editorial conflict. I started being pushed, you know, into directions that moved me away from focusing on that storyline. And as a result, she just sort of like petered out. And then unfortunately, you know, when Jan took the book over, you know, I think he was under instructions to to write all of that out as quickly as possible. Yeah. So so it's specifically about Gypsy. You know, there was there was one issue where you got a chance to delve a little bit into her. It was it was number 250 and it was she was under control of the the creature junior and she had these dreams that we saw of this perfect suburban right. upbringing and they were in their name was revealed Cindy Reynolds now was that yes. was that part of your plan to reveal like yeah. that was, was she really had that great suburban life or was that a, a yes. illusion yes. or no she was it was going to be revealed that that she had this great suburban life you know what theoretically I mean mm-hmm. there there it wouldn't have been as great as it actually turned out to be mm-hmm. <laughs> you know but that something traumatic had happened when she gained her powers. And as a result, she left it and basically blocked it from her mind. Oh, I see. Uh, And, you know, the reality of, of what had happened to her was so upsetting that she literally disappeared, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> and that's the metaphor. And became a wanderer and became someone who couldn't settle. And that was kind of the core. I would have fleshed it out. It would have been more developed. But that was kind of the plan. Gotcha. Okay. Now, I do have a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek question here. So in, in one of the storylines, Steel was working as a stuntman in a sword and sorcery movie. And there were some pretty <laughs> less-than-savory characters working on this film. Now, I happen to know from conversations with you that around the same time you were working on the movie Conan the Destroyer. So was this a little bit of real life creeping in or was it just a complete coincidence? I I, I mean, we had, uh, Roy and I had what amounted to both a terrific and an awful experience.
experience working on on that film. I mean, obviously, it's terrific to have anything you do get produced, you know, and, and so few films actually do get produced that uh, from scripts. You know, I mean, there's for every every movie that's made, there's a hundred scripts, you know, that that don't get made, or two hundred or four hundred. Right. So we had a pretty good batting average out of the I think ten movies that we wrote. We had two that actually got produced. Wow. Um, so yeah. So it was it was a positive, and we had a wonderful working relationship with the first director on the project, a guy named Roger Donaldson, who directed uh, a, a number of films in the '80s that were really successful uh, after he left our project. But we had an unfortunate run of, of luck working with Dino De Laurentiis after that, oh. because Dino didn't really know what he wanted to do with this project and just kept us on doing drafts because we were contracted for a certain amount of money in the back end. When you do a, a, a picture deal, you get an upfront payment for your first draft, uh, another payment for your second draft, and then potentially additional payments for additional drafts or one lump sum if the movie goes into production. Hmm. And what he did what he did is he had us do like six additional drafts, paying us for each draft, basically burning through the back end money that we would have gotten. Uh, which is fine. I mean, that, there's nothing wrong with, with doing that. That's that's a legitimate thing. But then by the end of it, we were burned out. We had written so many drafts of the film that we weren't really in a position to be fresh by the time they went into production. Gotcha. And the director they hired just pushed all the wrong buttons with us in our single meeting with him. <laughs> and I blew up, you know, because by that point we were punchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just felt like once again, we were being asked to explain why this movie needed the elements that we had put into it you know and, and over a period of six or seven drafts you move away from the the original vision to something that's very different and you're no longer sure what it is you're doing mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so we we were ended up being written out of the film you know we they brought in another writer to do the uh, production draft and we ended up not getting screenplay credit so we're I think both of us were pretty ticked off you know over that but as I say, ironically, at the premiere, we were talking to Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he was like, you know, I really liked your first draft. I don't understand why we didn't shoot that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we were like, well, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> if only the governor could have came to your rescue in the beginning. You would have all worked out. <laughs> well, it wasn't yet. I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, people always think of him as Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. But in 1984, he wasn't yet Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was starting to become Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he was more like the rock of the Scorpion King era. Okay. You know? No, that's fair. He, he that's had, fair. He hadn't yet become, you know, franchise Viagra, as, as he's called. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, Arnold became Arnold around the time that Conan the Destroyer was being produced. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that was the same year that Terminator came out. Oh, right. Uh, there you go. Okay. So, and, and Terminator was what really put him on the map. Sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right, so taking us back to because I I did that digression. I apologize. That's my fault. Sorry. No, that was all me. I, I did that to us. So all right, but talking about the the Justice League Detroit newbies. So we all know how they developed over the years in comics. But at the time you were writing the book, which of the four characters did you feel had the most potential, and which did you have the most difficult connecting with? 
I actually, you know, as I say, thought uh, that Gypsy had a lot of potential. But I thought Vixen was the one that I was most emotionally connected to mm-hmm. and would feel that would be the one most likely to go forward, you know, just, just because of her status, mm-hmm. you know, as the first black DC superheroine. And as a result, or at least I, I think she was. To, to my and, knowledge. And, yeah. And, and because, you know, she had a, a great name, a cool set of powers, and a fairly interesting background story. Mm-hmm. So all of that together, I felt like she had a lot of potential. In terms of potential that I wanted to explore, I really did want to do more with Gypsy than I did. In terms of the character that I probably had least connection to, it would have probably been Vibe. And that, again, as I say, was because of my lack of cultural recognition, you know, of, mm-hmm. of the character. I mean, I could relate to him as someone from a urban immigrant minority that, that had been badly treated mm-hmm. you know, at the time of their immigration, but I was by that point, you know, second generation right. and, you know, didn't have the same issues. So, and I just didn't have the same cultural background, you know, to, to really make it authentic. So that one, I think I had the most difficulty. Gotcha. With. Now it's, it's interesting, you know, people tease Justice League Detroit, you know, they, they, they joke around about it, whatever, but come on, these guys are all major TV stars now, you know, yeah, each, each yeah. one of the newbies have gone on in the CW shows like Flash or Legends Tomorrow, whichever. So what do you think about the live action translations of the characters and which one do you feel has captured the, the spirit the best? Oh, I, I, I'm happy with all of them, but but I got to say, I think Vixen, they, they nailed Vixen the best, just in terms of the, the actress that they had performing the character and the way that they wrote the character uh, in Legends really gave her that regal dignity, you know, that almost Amazonian quality that I think she should have. I was disappointed by the initial version of Firestorm that they had in The Flash with, you know, this adult Ronnie Raymond, because right. that's, a, that's a complete misreading of the character once again. But the reboot with Jax and Professor Stein, I thought they got the, the, the relationship pretty solidly done there. But because of the limits of the budget, they couldn't really play that character as fully as, you know, you'd, you'd want to see it. You know, let's put it that way. Right. Vibe, I mean, there is nobody better in terms of performance than Carlos, <laughs> uh, you know, as Vibe. And I'm disappointed that they took his powers away from him. I'm not really sure why they did that. You know, it seemed like a completely unnecessary move, especially now that in the, the current season, they, they've got him using equipment to recreate the powers. Hmm. It's like, why did they do that? You know, it, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. But maybe that was something that Carlos wanted. Maybe that was something that, you know, that the network wanted or they were trying to cut their budget in yeah. some way, you know, by reducing one of the powered characters so they wouldn't have to deal with visual effects. I don't know, but it, it, it disappointed me. In terms of Steel, I think that's the weakest version of the character. I think it's cool that they do that one little trip, you know, of, of, of him turning into like Colossus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but he's underused, and, and again, it should be a teenager. It shouldn't be an adult. I, I'm not really sure why they went the direction they did with that character. Uh, it felt like it was a little bit of a, a mix of Jeff John's version of uh, Citizen Steel and yeah. and like you said, kind of a Colossus thing. And and the whole Legends of Tomorrow show kind of has a Justice League international vibe with a, with jokiness. So it feels like it was almost kind of yeah. going in a, a booster gold with with you know Colossus powers sort of thing. Yeah, well, I love I, of all the, the the CW shows, that's my favorite because it it literally doesn't take itself seriously, and you can't take this kind of stuff too seriously. I think sometimes the the, the Arrow show went so 
serious, you know, and dark that it, it, it while it was obviously successful for them, it made it kind of a grind to watch. Hmm. Uh, and Flash sometimes goes so much into the melodrama of their relationships that it is also kind of painful to watch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, you've got to have a light touch with this kind of material. That's the, the, the lesson of the MCU is that you can, there's, there's many different ways you can go with these characters, but uh, with superhero characters, I mean, you can go like in the direction of the boys, for example, where you're satirizing very darkly the, the entire concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go in the direction of kind of using the, the, the superhero stuff as uh, a metaphor, you know, like the way that they did with Smallville, where it's more about teenagers growing up and the problems of teen, teen life and seen through the eyes of a superhero. Mm-hmm. But when you're trying to mix that together, you know, and, and do soap opera, but serious soap opera, <laughs> that's a problem. <laughs> I find that that's like teeth grinding for me. You know, the scenes with, with where, where people are earnestly telling Barry that he's the soul of life, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, please stop. You know, just, <laughs> it, it's, it's not what we need. Legends has fun with it. And that's a good way to go. You can't take these kinds of characters so rigidly serious. Uh, you know, you're a Firestorm fan. You can tell where my mindset, you know. Is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I always treated Ronnie's problems as serious problems, but never treated the material as serious. You know, it's it's like we did characters like the weasel and hyena, uh, you know, Killer Frost, <laughs> you know, which is a pun. Uh, you know, all of these things were, were done in an effort to, to be both light and serious. I'm right there with you. Uh, it took me a while to warm up to Legends Tomorrow, but yeah, it's my favorite of the shows now. And you, you just see, like you said, it, it takes itself just a little bit not seriously, and it has fun with the, the material. And that's what yeah. matters. Yeah. yeah. And the rotating cast is a, is a great idea. It has tended, I think, as their budget has has probably dwindled as the seasons has, has gone on, because that's kind of the, the point. You, know, you get less and less money uh, to, to some degree. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, you, you spend all your big bucks the first year and then you start trying to find economies. So they've, they've leaned more towards non-powered characters or characters whose powers are basically light shows. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And that, that's kind of disappointing. But, you know, okay, they still have great stunt fights and that's that's always, I'm always in for that. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. Uh, the Vixen, they did a fantastic job capturing yeah, her. They, they really, really did. did. That that was my favorite adaptation of, yeah. of, of, of the characters. The most authentic costume, too. Yeah, that's true. Good point. Now, looking at the other characters on the Justice League Detroit team, you know, Aquaman, Martian Manhunter, Zatanna, Elongated Man, those were the, the, the old guard that you chose. And I know you were trying yeah. to avoid using characters that had their own ongoing title, as you said. So, what made you choose those four characters over characters such as Green Arrow or Black Canary or Red Tornado or Hawkman or Adam? Well, part of it was personal preference, you mm-hmm. know, where characters who I, I wanted to write, you know, okay. uh, uh, I've always been a Martian Manhunter fan. I, since reading Secret Origins, uh, the first Secret Origins giant size comic, which uh, I had never heard of Martian Manhunter, you know, and then I read this origin story and it had so much pathos and so much interest. So I was like, oh, wow, I want to want to read more about this and realize, oh, this is the character that's in Justice League, <laughs> 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 you know, who 
who was not interesting. You know, the, right. the Martian Manhunter in the Justice League always seemed to me to be like, why is he there? You know, he, he, he Gardner did, had no idea what that character could be. But the character that was presented in the Secret Origin story had such pathos. I thought, I got to write that guy someday. You know, I wanted to write, write him. And Aquaman... I'd been a fan of that character when he was rebooted by Steve Skates and Jim Aparo uh, mm. under Dick Giordano with uh, a terrific continuing uh, story uh, line that's been reprinted recently, you know, in, in uh, some omnibus editions. Yeah, The Search for um, Mara is great. Yeah, just great stuff. And the first time that that character was taken seriously as a an adult superhero. So I felt he and Mara and their story was interesting to me. Elongated Man, always a personal favorite. I just I just loved Ralph and Sue. And nothing has distressed me more than what what happened to uh, those characters as a result of one of the crises. Oh, oh we just pretend uh, that didn't happen, actually. Don't worry. Yeah. I, I, I just, uh, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Brad Metzger. I totally get where he was coming from, you know, and I will never forgive it. Right. <laughs> All of those things are true, you know, so uh, it's just one of those he killed Sue and uh, Ronnie Raymond in the same comic, so there you go. Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and you know, uh, just a, so, such a horrible. Yeah, uh, you know, just it's all just so hard. It was just right. so also hard. Ugh. And then Zatanna, again, another big fan favorite of mine. I, I fell for that character when she first appeared as a visiting character in Julie Schwartz's superhero comics, mm-hmm. you know, in that terrific little mini series of, you know, her looking for her father and encountering different, different superheroes along the way. And I thought, oh, she's great. I think I was the one who brought her into the Justice League. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So I just always liked her character. I liked the idea of a sorceress. A magician, you know, brings a certain power that you don't have otherwise to a group. Uh, and it, it, it just made sense to me. So it was a difference. You know, it was sort of like, who do you want to write? You know, Green Arrow and Black Canary, I liked writing them. You know, I did a couple of those series stories uh, of them. But I felt like Denny O'Neill really owned those characters mm, sure. uh, as a writer, and uh, there was nothing more I, sh- I could say about them. And Red Tornado, it felt like that would have been, I would just basically be doing the vision, okay. and I didn't really want to do that. So sure. um, it, it just, you know, as I say, personal preference. And the idea of, uh, of Sue and Ralph to, be, to contrast with Aquaman and Mera, you know, here's a happy couple, here's an unhappy couple. <laughs> there you go. Uh, here's an alien who who, you know, feels alienated literally from the world, you know, because he's from another world. And here's a strong female character who potentially could have a rival for uh, someone else's affections in uh, Vixen. You know, so you have, you know, two strong female characters to balance each other out. You know, I, I, I didn't at that time know anything about how to write female characters who wouldn't be involved with a man. So, <laughs> you know, I didn't, I failed the uh, Bechtel test. Yeah. <laughs> That's that true. <laughs> violently with that. But, you know, again, I was doing the best I could at the time. And that pretty much uh, sums it up. Well, all right, I've got two quick comments uh, on that, and then I'm going to grill you on something there. Uh, so first off, for those of you at home who may not have read the Justice League Detroit era, first thing you got to know is you may hear people say all the time that Martian Manhunter's always been the heart of the Justice League. That is not true. Not until the Justice League Detroit era. That is where Martian Manhunter truly became the heart of the Justice League. And that's all down to Jerry. Then those of you that love Sue Dibney, in Justice League Europe, that is also down to Jerry making her an active 
active character rather than just a, a support character that Ralph mentioned once in a while. She became an active character during this era. So again, props to you. Now here, here's where I grill you, sir. Uh, sure. About a year into the run, Aquaman abruptly leaves the team. So this is the guy who disbanded the Justice League <laughs> and told everyone they had to be committed to the team. And then the minute a pretty redhead shows up, he's out of there. So well, what, what drove that decision to remove Aquaman from the book? Um, I, I, I'm not sure, but I, it may have been that they were going to do a new Aquaman series. Okay. Uh, there was one, but not too long after that. That's true. Yeah. I think that was motivation, but it was also, there was pressure to bring the, the, the main JLA characters back in and under those circumstances, you know, doing stories that, that brought in Batman, brought in Superman, you know, it, it, Aquaman couldn't be the leader mm. uh, because he was not perceived as the most powerful person in the group at that point, or at least the one with the greatest authority. And it may also, I mean, this is speculation because uh, I don't really remember what prompted it. It may also have been that I was directed editorially to do it. Mm. I know that about a year into it, we were getting the, the, the sales figures and the, and the pressure to make changes to the changes was already moving in that, in that direction. And so a lot of the intentions that, that started the book out were already being pushed over to the side. Gotcha. Now, speaking of changes, about, about the time you left the book, right before that, the, the Amazing Heroes, I guess you call them a zine, if you will, or comic trade. Let's call it that. Anyway, uh, in the summer 1985 preview special, they mentioned that you were actually planning to add Lorraine Riley, Firehawk, to the Justice League. Now, do, you, do you recall any of those plans and what you might have done? Yeah, with I think I definitely did want to do that. I, I kind of missed a certain level of, of visual power in the book. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, while these characters were all powerful characters, they didn't have like a really visual power. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So Firehawk would have been visually stunning, you know, in the book. And that would have been, I think, important for it. I've always been a proponent of her being in the Justice League without Firestorm. I think in, without him independently, oh, sure. she'd be phenomenal. It, it would. She deserves as much attention as she uh, she could get. Oh, yeah. She should have her, her own book. Yes. I mean, visual, visually, she's a, a, a really great character. Yes. <laughs> it's like, how could you not want to put that on the cover of a, of a comic book? I, I, I don't understand. But I don't understand a lot of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the Despero storyline. So that is remembered very much as a fan favorite from this era. You know, it, it redefined Despero. Uh, and, and some people call him Despero, Despero. You know, there's all kinds of ways to say it. But um, I always it, called him Despero. <laughs> there we go. You know what? I'll, I'll go with you. So, <laughs> And this storyline included some really interesting themes on rebirth and revenge and like team dynamics and relationships. Was there anything in particular that inspired you with that storyline or you were trying to accomplish? Um, I can't recall. I know that Despero has always been one of my favorite Justice League villains, mm-hmm. uh, you know, going back to the, I think one of his first appearances, you know, where he's doing playing chess with with the Flash, I guess, you know, and, and characters are just Justice yeah. League number one. Yeah, so he he always struck me as a character that was poorly utilized, mm-hmm. and I, I wanted to do something. I always liked an aspect of Marvel, which was set your villains in the context of their own world, their own worldview. What, what is it that they think they're doing? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. It's like. 
And so many DC villains were just bad guys. Okay. You know, and, but Despero, because he was an alien and he was from another, another world. And you ask yourself, what was that world like that produced a guy like him? You know, what was that? Uh, and how did that come about? And what, 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 where did he fit in? And what does he want? You know, really, what does he want? Those were questions that, that just sort of appealed to me. And, you know, I was also looking for stories that would get the characters out of Detroit, you know, and into a, a larger environment, you know, because that, again, was sort of an editorial mandate. And I was feeling too little constrained by how things were, were developing there. So, yeah, that was uh, the, the primary motives. Well, it's a, absolutely a fantastic story. I, I just recently reread your whole Just League Detroit run, getting ready for this. And that is really, I mean, the, I love the whole thing, but that's a real standout story. It's really phenomenal. And, and Luke did just such a wonderful job visually yes. on that book. I mean, yes. that was, I think that was peak Luke. So, yeah. yeah I, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. And and that character, uh, Despero, is going on to be a major bad guy, you know, for DC again. And it's thanks mm-hmm. to the reinvention you guys put together. So, yeah. Well, we take credit where we're, you were saying what I think there was an implication when you were saying uh, at the time, Justice League Detroit was kind of dissed. But here they are all these years later appearing in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason was and I and I have to take to give credit on this is because when Jeff Johns was a kid, that was the book he was introduced to the Justice League by. And he grew up in Detroit and he felt some emotional connection to this to these characters so that as he became influential in the TV and film efforts that DC was making, he was the one who said, hey, how about this character? How about that character? How about we do this? How about we do that? You know, Jeff and people of his age group, who are the now the, the people who are producing this kind of material, read that book when they were kids. And they weren't the fans who had been reading Justice League prior to that. They were the ones who discovered Justice League through that. So that's why. I mean, it, it, it had a little bit less to do with the inherent value of those characters than the nostalgia, I think, that uh, people of Jeff's generation, you know, feel for those characters. That's probably why I hold on to a lot of it, too, myself. I mean, it, sure. Justice League Detroit was my first ongoing uh, Justice League series. I, I I grew up with Super Friends, exactly. of course, and I read some back issues, whatever. But Justice League, I actually had a subscription, you know, the kind that comes in the mail, yeah. to Justice yeah. League Detroit. Yeah. And that, that was my first team. There you go. That's the truth. All right, Jerry, it is time for our lightning round, sir. These are going to be fast paced. I'm going to give you five seconds on the clock to answer each question. I may say pass. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. All right. First question. Besides the Punisher and Firestorm, who is your most enduring creation? Oh, Vixen. I think Vixen. Wow. I was going to follow it up with, and why is it Killer Croc? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Killer Croc is, there's an argument to be made there. I mean, he's definitely my most lucrative creation. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You've mentioned that to me before. Uh, Yeah. But but yeah, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of superheroes. Fantastic. All right. Which of Green Arrow's trick arrows is the most useless? (laughs) Inflatable balloon arrow. (laughs) His balloon arrow has never struck me as particularly useful. (laughs) Maybe him and Dino want to go for a hot air balloon ride. You never know. (laughs) So if you could go back in time and had the chance to write for any 1970s television series, what show would you pick? Wonder Woman. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I I actually wrote a spec script for Wonder Woman in in like 1979 or whenever it was. Well, actually, was it 1980? I don't know. 
I forget. Wow. But, yeah. I mean, okay. I, if it's the 70s, uh, early 70s, probably would have been Rockford Files. But, See, okay. Uh, I was going to guess uh, like a cop or PI show because I know your history writing for TV, so I thought that's where you'd land. Okay. That was an accident. I became a, a, a mystery writer totally by accident. <laughs> I should have I been writing for the superhero shows, but you're uh, stereotyped by uh, what your first job was. And my first job was writing mysteries. So there I was. <laughs> As you said, the career takes you where it does it's a journey right yep so did you ever eat superman peanut butter and if so how did it taste i don't recall if it came out when i was a teenager or a kid i probably would have but i would i can't imagine myself as an adult buying it (laughs) fair enough so uh which of and and we haven't really talked much about spider-man at all here so which of spider-man's villains is the biggest lovable loser Oh, uh, Sandman. I, th- I think San- Sandman, they try to make him powerful, mm-hmm. but he's basically just a big bag of sand. You know, <laughs> <laughs> He's just a big lump <laughs> in my life, in my mind. Anybody that can be beaten with a garden hose uh, has questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so of all the comics in your collection, now this is specifically ones you were not involved in creating, which do you personally treasure the most? Oh, my Mad Magazine collection. My Mad uh, Mad Comics collection. Oh, wow. <laughs> First 25 issues. And yeah, I treasure those. Oh, that's fantastic. So was it Mad Comics before it was Mad Magazine? Yes. Yeah. Oh. The first 25 issues were comics. I and, did not know uh, that. Yeah. They, 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 the brilliant, brilliant Harvey Kurtzman mm-hmm. scripts basically making fun of comics and comic strips and uh, occasionally movies, occasionally TV shows and, and the like. But but. It was in comic format, and most of them were – I didn't discover them until they were reprinted in paperbacks. Uh, the first five uh, Mad Magazine paperbacks were reprints of the original comics, and then later in the – by the late 60s, early 70s, when I started making money, I went and I bought those original comics. Wow. Uh, and now you can you can get them on Comixology. Oh, so really? You, okay. Yeah. I, I would – if I were you, I would go – and I, I say this to your readership. Go buy those first 25 issues. They're worth a buck 50 or two bucks each that you're going to spend. And my God, they're great. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm going to have to yeah. check those out. And uh, note to self, uh, don't ever tell Jerry he's only got five seconds to answer a question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't shut up. <laughs> well, we're thankful for that, actually, sir. So you're fine. So uh, what action figures or statues or anything of the like do you have on display in your office right now? Oh, my God. I have all my all the characters that I've created uh, that have have toys. Oh gosh! Uh, so I have I have a big big statue of Killer Croc fighting Batman. I have a, another big one of Killer Croc by himself. I have a, a huge Power Girl, a, a huge Punisher, maybe a dozen Funko Pops. Oh right, right. Fire, Firestorm and Captain Marvel, uh, meaning Ms. Marvel, and you know all the these characters. Uh, Fire Lord. I have a Fire Lord statue, and geez, just bunches of stuff. <laughs> I have a big brag wall. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking from experience with uh, action figures and, and things like that, that becomes a dusting nightmare, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I've had a couple of them break. Oh. Um, yeah. When my housekeeper has dusted them occasionally, she knocked one over. Ouch. Uh, oh. so. 
But you know, it is what it is. I have I have copies. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I, I have found that compressed air is my friend when it comes to action figures. So <laughs> ah, good idea. That's how I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. That's great. Just be careful you don't knock them over. That's you like put your fingers on their feet yeah. and then blast it with a with the air. Well, because I live in California, I, I have a quake hold under the ah. under the statues. Okay, so I can't knock them over. There, there you go. You're all set then. Yeah. So, what is the most unusual thing you've been asked to autograph? Somebody's arm that oh! they then had. Ta- they then had my signature tattooed. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Wow. Did you yeah, get to see the that, tattoo after the fact? Or yes, just... yeah, they, they went and had it done. Uh, it was at, at some convention that had a tattoo artist there, too. Uh, and wow. they went and had it tattooed. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> wow, that is that is commitment right there, folks. I mean, yeah, I, I, I love I you, Jerry, like, wow. but but that's not happening. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I was like, I, I, I didn't know if I wanted to contribute to this, you know. <laughs> That, that is some sincere flattery right there. Yeah. All right, final question. Who would win in a fight, Paco Ramon or Cisco Ramon? <laughs> well, I'd say that these days, Cisco is the, the default Ramon. Okay, <laughs> so that's fair. To, he would have to win. There, That is absolutely fair. He has completely redefined that role. And who would believe that Vibe, you know, the Vibe we knew back in 1984 is now a, a television star that's been going for, what, six, seven years, whatever, is like I know, one of the I most know. beloved characters. He's... I mean, my wife and daughter even know who he is, and that's that's just amazing. So, well, Carlos is just terrific. Yeah, I mean, he, he he owns that character, and I hope he stays with uh, stays with it forever. Yeah. <laughs> so, finally, you know, if can you tell the folks at home what you're currently working on, or anything you've got coming up, or ways they can uh, follow you on social media? Well, you can follow me at, on Twitter uh, if you don't mind my political rantings. Uh, <laughs> it's and it's just Jerry Conway, one word. And beyond that, I'm going to be at some conventions. I hope upcoming this year once things settle back to some normality sure and that's pretty much it i'm i'm retired as a professional writer so i'm not writing anything new for the time being but you know the future is always always open well i'm still hopeful that you get a chance to take another stab at firestorm over at dc because somebody needs to get that character on the right track well, you know, <laughs> I would love to see somebody. Uh, at one point, apparently, Brian Clevenger had been approached to do the do the book. Yeah, I cannot think of anybody who would have done a better job. So, if DC is looking for you know to ever revive that character, they should definitely go for someone like Brian. You know, who has a comedic sem- sensibility and a wonderful ability to uh, build worlds. So that would be my suggestion. Couldn't agree more. So he's fantastic. So, so Jerry, again, thanks. So much for being here. This has been an absolute blast chatting with you about Just League Detroit. I know the people at home uh, are going to be thrilled to hear this conversation. I, really, I was just looking for an excuse to talk with you again because it's been too long. <laughs> it's always fun to chat with you. So thanks again, and, and I really, really appreciate it. You bet. It's my pleasure. Well, folks, that is going to do it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. I'm Jerry Conway. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make, make something, something of it? it?